for just a moment of praising his grace. That will be a glad reunion day. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for being out on this Wednesday night. Grab your hymn book. Stand up. Stand up. Let's get ready to sing now. Brother Ken's going to come lead us uh, as we grab your hymn book and let's sing together. Brother Ken. Hymn number 246 in your blue book tonight. Hymn number 246. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. We'll sing all four verses. Hymn number 246 tonight.
can, let's remain standing for prayer tonight. Just a couple of quick prayer requests. I want you to continue to pray for uh, Brother Travis Tincher. They are still waiting on the Lord to just come and take him. So pray for a peaceful homegoing, if you will. Sister Debbie Clark came through her surgery well yesterday. I was chatting with them last night, and they are, are thrilled with the process of her surgery. So pray for her. Pray also for uh, Connie's husband, if you would, as he continues to recuperate. Brother Steve, he's got a whole host of health issues uh, that he's battling tonight. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask, ask God to bless us this evening. Father, it's with humble hearts we come to you now, thanking you for the opportunity that you've provided for us to be back in your house tonight. And Lord, as always we say, we surely don't take for granted the fact that church doors are open. And Lord, that folks are here tonight ready to continue to study, hear from heaven, and learn from you. So Lord, I pray that you'd open up those windows of heaven this evening. Lord, I pray for these requests tonight. I pray especially for Brother Travis. Lord, you've been so good to him for these 98 years. And Lord, I pray that he transitions over to the other side, that you would just be that peace that passes all understanding for the family. And Lord, that you would not tarry. Lord, you're coming to bring him home. Lord, I pray for services tonight. We'll thank you. We'll sure praise you now in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stay standing. We'll have a song of fellowship. Brother Ken. Amen. Page number 169, Come Thou Fount. We'll sing all three verses tonight before we have a time of fellowship. Come number 169 tonight, Come Thou Fount. Pay attention to the words as we sing it along.
All right, thank you so much as always. Uh, let me give you some quick announcements now. First of all, uh, anybody that wants to ride with us tomorrow night, I'm going to take the big van and we're going to head down to Gospelite. The Sword of the Lord Conference is happening this week. Tomorrow night's the final night. Brother Joe Arthur will be preaching. I don't know who else is preaching with him. Do you know, honey? Uh, but anyway, uh, there's two preachers, one at 7, one at 8, uh, and it's usually done by 9, starts at 7, usually done by 9. Anybody that wants to ride down with us, uh, bring some money for fast food, because if we're going to meet, we're going to eat. Amen. Uh, and if you want to go with us, we'll have a good time tomorrow. We'll leave uh, from here at the church at 515 and uh, head down and have a good time tomorrow night. Uh, this one also is not in your bulletin, but will be uh, beginning next uh, uh, Sunday on August the 12th, Saturday, annual hike to Grayson Highlands, leaving here at 8 a.m., returning at 9 p.m. Brother Daniel have the flyer on Sunday with everything, all the details, and uh, what to bring on that. So keep that in mind if you would. Uh, uh, also, if you would, don't forget to bring in any of those items that, uh, that you haven't already for Operation Christmas Child. Please uh, bring that in on Sunday as we wrap up our Christmas in July. And I'll say again, thank you for everybody that helped out this past Sunday. Over $1,000 raised, so praise the Lord for that. That's fantastic. Uh, getting 100 boxes already paid for, and that's a sure answer to prayer. Fellas, make your way down tonight. Congregation, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, if you would, please. Revelation chapter 19. You mind the Lord as you give with tithes and offerings. Father, bless the offering. May it be what you'd have it to be in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much. Revelation chapter 19 tonight. We are going to continue uh, with the series that we've looked on through the summer entitled uh, Our Summer of Prophecy Message. And interestingly, I mentioned to you this past Sunday about uh, the peppering of questions that our teenagers did on me as we traveled up to uh, the activity in the mountain and all the way back down. And we spent a whole lot of time talking about some of the things that we will discuss this evening. So if you found your place, say amen tonight. Revelation chapter 19. Wes, good to see you, buddy. Amen. Three weeks in a row now. We've had a military hero home with us. We had Christian, Zach, and Wes, and uh, he brought Summer with him, and she's going to have a baby. Amen. <laughs> good to see y'all. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Revelation 19 tonight. We will begin in verse 11, and we'll read down through the course of the night into verse number 21. Before we do that, let me set the stage for you for just a moment. Since the dawn of mankind in the Garden of Eden, all of human history has been marching towards an event that is recorded in Revelation 19. Event is the day when Jesus Christ returns into this world in power and glory and will once again take his rightful place on the throne of David. Interestingly, there are some passages that we often look at in, uh, at Christmas time that in fact refer to this incredible event. Let me read a couple of those to you. You don't have to turn. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Luke 1, 32 says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And this is, of course, when the angel is appearing to Mary 
The angel goes on to say, And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And verse 30 says, Then shall appear the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, the last words recorded of Jesus Christ, he said uh, these four simple words, Surely I come quickly. Now, I want to say to you tonight that just because uh, we haven't seen him in 2,000 years doesn't mean he's not coming. And I submit to you likewise that the first part of his return we've already talked about. We call that the rapture of the church when he comes uh, and not for everyone to see him, but only for the bride of Christ. When he comes for the tri uh, uh, prior to the tribulation, when he comes up with the shout of God, the voice of the archangel, and the trump, uh, that is to usher in the bride of Christ. Uh, we talked about how that begins the seven years of tribulation here on earth. We talked about the two events that will be happening in heaven. Those two events are, of course, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the judgment seat of Christ where mankind that are saved... Uh, are judged not for their sins, which have already been paid for, but rather for their works and for their deeds. But tonight, what we will be looking at is not what we call the rapture of the church, but is, in fact, the second coming of the Lord. And I want to be very clear, because sometimes folks uh, use those two terms or two phrases synonymously, and they don't mean the same thing. When the Lord comes back for the rapture, He will not come back to planet Earth. We are ushered up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We go to Him. He doesn't come down here. We meet Him. But when He comes back in Revelation chapter number 19, He is altogether different. He's not coming uh, as a servant. Uh, he's coming as the Lion of Judah. And when He comes back the next time, He will appear altogether different than what He was the last time He was here. And even when He comes back for the bride, you understand that when He comes back for the bride, everybody's not going to see him, everybody's not going to know him, everybody's not going to hear him, he's only there for the bride. But when he comes back in Revelation 19, uh, we are told very clearly by Paul in Corinthians that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, this is when that happens. You need to understand that the reality is simply this. If you hadn't been back in 2,000 years, that just means we're even closer to the time he does come back. So let's begin reading tonight. I'll give you three things about this second coming of the Lord. Number one, I want you to note with me that his coming will be visible. His coming will be seen. His coming will be noticed. You know this. We talked about it already. But I'll say it again that when the rapture takes place, it will be so sudden and so swift that many people uh, on planet Earth won't even know what's taking place. In fact, in describing that, he says he will come like a thief in the night. And at that moment, he will steal away his jewels uh, and take that. By the way, that's us that are saved. Take them with him to heaven. The rapture will not be a visible event for most of humanity. But you hear me well tonight. The second coming of the Lord will be seen by everybody. Let's notice number one tonight, his appearance. Go with me, please, to Revelation chapter Number uh, 19, let's begin reading in verse number 11, and we'll read a few verses. Notice what it says in 19, verse 11. John speaking, he says, I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, which and his name is called the Word of God. Go to verse 16, please. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, and I hope in your Bible it's got all these next words capitalized because it clearly tells us that his name that is written is King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. So the question is, when the Lord comes back this next time, and everyone sees him, what will he look like? What will his appearance be? Understand that we're not told everything, but what we are told here is pretty awesome, pretty spectacular. We're told, first of all, in verse number 12, uh, that he is full of glory. Look in verse 12 again, if you would. His eye were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. If you've got a reference Bible, a Schofield or other kind of reference Bible, it likely tells you that the word crowns here is actually translated or means the word diadems. Interestingly, you juxtapose this with Revelation chapter 6, where the Antichrist is also said to be wearing a crown. These are two important distinctions, and I want you to catch this tonight. Because the word crown that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 6, verse number 2, I believe, is in fact the word Stephanos, which is, is akin to the crown that someone is given for having won a contest. Like we would think of when an athlete crosses the finish line and they're given the laurel wreath crown. That's the crown that's implied in Revelation chapter 6 that the Antichrist has. Why is that important? Because that's a crown that is given to someone. But a diadem is not a crown that is given to someone, but is rather a crown that someone wears uh, because of who they are. Do you understand that when a person is born into a royal family, they are given a crown not because of what they've accomplished or what they've done because of who they are? That matters, church, uh, because when it says that he's be going to be wearing many crowns, or as we would say and sing about often, a royal diadem that speaks to the fact that as he returns in the clouds and in the heavens and every eye sees him and as he makes his way back down to planet earth, he is wearing many diadems, many crowns, and at that moment when I see him, they recognize the fact that this is royalty descending from heaven. It's full of, full of glory. I submit to you this evening, and this is vastly important in my humble opinion, that at the moment we see him, we will recognize the fact that how he was the last time is altogether different than how he is this time. The last time Jesus stepped foot on planet earth, he was crucified. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. When he comes back next time, he's not riding on a donkey, friend. He's riding on a white horse. And when he comes back the next time, uh, nobody's going to be putting a crown of thorns on his head uh, because he already descends wearing multitudes of royal diadems. And when he comes back the next time, they're not going to be laughing. They're not going to be making fun of him. In fact, uh, when I see him, they're going to recognize the power and the awesomeness and the glory. And at that moment, according to Paul, uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But would you look at me? For many folks, it'll be too late then. Too late. Not only is he full of glory, but verse number 11 plainly tells us that he also fights in righteousness. John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And please note this next clause. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. I've shared with you often that I'm an avid fan of history, especially American history, and especially colonial American history. I love to study about how our country was founded by Christian men and forefathers uh, and the influence that Christianity had upon our country. One of the things that you quickly learn when you study American history is that we have a proliferation of war in our society. A hundred years of American history, there's been a whole bunch of wars that have been fought. Many of them for very valid reasons, some of them for pretty silly reasons. But you listen to me and listen to me carefully. When Jesus comes the next time, he does not come as a lamb to make peace. He comes as a lion of Judah to declare war, and his cause is righteous and just. We might read historical accounts of civil war, of 
battle of, of various conflicts across all of world history. We might take sides and say this one was relevant and this side was relevant. Or this battle was fought because of this and this was appropriate and this was not. But you hear me well tonight. When Jesus comes back the next time, his cause will be valid, his war will be just, and there won't be anybody who's arguing whether or not it's a righteous war. His nature. I want you to notice not only his nature, his appearance. Notice also his names. When the Lord returns, Scripture ascribes to him three names in these verses. Three names that are attached to him. And I submit to you that these names reveal something about his character and his person. Let's jump to the one that is the most challenging for us. It is first of all found in verse 12. And for lack of a better phrase, I'm going to call this a mystery name. Because notice what it says. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written. And notice the next clause. That no man knew but he himself. I can't tell you how many preachers that I like to read after that like to suppose what that name is, that like to give their idea, like to give their thoughts, and like to tell you what they are convinced that that name is and what it might be. But can I read to you again what Scripture says? That no man knew save him himself. Guess what, folks? Ain't none of us know what it is. And that's not grammatically correct, but it is scripturally correct. I'm not going to stand here and try to speculate. I'm not even going to stand here and try to tell you why he keeps it a secret. I've got my thoughts behind it, but the reality is uh, for his reasons and his alone, uh, that name of mystery is kept a secret. We don't know what it is, uh, but I believe one day we will. I'll tell you why in just a moment. We'll call that the name of mystery. But then there's also a second name, and I'm going to call this the name of ministry. Why? Look at verse 13. He was clothed in a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Three names that are ascribed to the Lord. One of them is a mystery name. We don't know what it is. Only he knows. A second name that's ascribed to him at this point is called the Word of God. I submit to all of us that are Bible students, that name should not surprise us. All you have to do is go back uh, to the Gospel of John, who, by the way, is the same author that's writing this. And notice what it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 very plainly tells us that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to understand tonight that ever since he stepped into the pages of humanity, Jesus has ministered through the spoken Word of God. Look at how he defended himself or withheld the attacks of Satan through the 40 days of wilderness wanderings. Scripture gives us three times that Satan attacked him, but let's not kid ourselves into thinking that that was the totality of Satan's attacks. I know Satan. You know Satan. There might have been three times in Scripture that we're recorded, but he didn't stop there. And on the three times that we've got, Jesus responded to the attacks by not giving his opinion, not giving his idea, but he simply says, as it is written. Over and over and over, Satan attacked the Lord, and the Lord stopped the attacks by giving Scripture evidence. I'm fascinated by the fact that on one occasion, Satan himself misquoted Scripture. Don't kid yourself into thinking that he doesn't know that Bible you hold in your lap. He misquotes it, and I love how the Lord quotes it correctly and shuts him up and shuts him down. So let me give you an important application tonight. If you're going to handle Satan, it won't be because of your church attendance. It won't be because of who you know or who you are or how many years you've been a part of the church. If you handle Satan and you withstand the attacks, it will be because of how deeply vested you are in the Word of God. 
You might not be able to quote scripture. Uh, you might not be able to pepper out scripture. Uh, but I submit to you that if you're in scripture, you will know the meaning of scripture. And you can handle Satan as it is written, the name of ministry. And I love this one. There's the name of mystery. There's the name of ministry. Boy, let's look at verse number 16. This is the good one. He hath on his vesture. And on his thigh, you know, thigh speaks of strength. When you got to lift something, what are we always told? Lift with your legs, not your back. Because your thighs represent the core. That's where your strength is. And you know if you have to lift a heavy object and you bend over and try to lift it with your back, you do that one too many times and your back goes out quickly. But when you're lifting with your thigh, that's your source of strength, if you will, uh, I believe that's written, uh, that's the reason why this name in, is written in two places, but specifically on his thigh. And what is that name? King of kings, Lord of lords. This tells us plainly that when he returns in the heavens, who he is won't be a mystery. When he appears from heaven and begins to descend downward, folks will not have to look up and say, what is that or who is that? I believe, and this is Gregology, but I believe uh, that when they see him, they'll know. And I'll say again, for many, it'll be too late. His appearance. Notice, secondly, tonight, not only his appearance, but his army. His army. Every king has an army, and the Lord Jesus is no exception. In fact, he has an army that comes with him that's very large and is very special in its nature. Look, if you would, please, at verse number 14. And the army which were in heaven followed with him upon white horses. The next clause is very important. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So when the Lord comes back, he doesn't come back by himself. In fact, we might say he's the general of this army. He's out ahead of his forces, and he's got a whole band, and I hear people say often, a band of angels that come after him. That is scripturally, I believe, incorrect. How, who, if, if it's not angels, who is it? We'll go back, that's right, go back and look, if you would, please, at verse number 8. Notice what it says in verse number 8. Go back to verse 7 so that we get the whole picture. Let us be glad and rejoice. Give honor to him. To him there is the Lamb. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife hath made herself ready to her. The her now is the pronoun that goes back to the antecedent wife. Uh, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Jump over to verse 14. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Clean and white in verse 8, white and clean in verse 14. I believe that we're talking about the same people in verse 8 as we are in verse 14. So who's coming back with the general when he comes back in the heavens? I don't believe it's a band of angels. I believe it's the bride of Christ. The bride always, uh, upon uh, marrying the groom, if she's uh, in love with him, wants to be where he is. And so when the groom leaves, the bride's going to leave. When he descends, the bride's going to come with him. And she still think about it for just a moment. Wesley could sure tell us about it. All you servicemen and women could tell us about it. Uh, when you head into battle, uh, you're not dressed in your whites. You're dressed for battle. Uh, so we look at this and think, why in heaven's name are we dressed in white? Uh, because we're not the one doing the fighting. We don't have to worry about staining our garments. The general is going to do the fighting for us, his armies. Notice, if you would please, not only his appearance, his armies, but his armaments. What do I mean by that? Armaments are what you use to battle. If I said to you tonight, America's at war, you would think of nuclear warheads, uh, ammunition, gun, tanks, and all of that would be appropriate. But look at verse number 15. 
Notice, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. If you underline in your Bibles, underline that phrase, rod of iron. Treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. Jesus comes back to clean this world up. He doesn't come with nuclear warheads. He doesn't come with tanks. He doesn't come with artillery. He comes with something that is far more powerful than all of that. His word. As a sharp sword, you understand that the word of God is described as a two-edged sword that cuts both ways. Remember, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, his word is described as being sharper than a two-edged sword. It has the power to help men. It also has the power to judge man. So instead of coming with a vast arsenal of weaponry, all Jesus needs is his word to destroy the armies of the enemy. Interestingly, love that phrase that it's mentioned that he will rule with a rod of iron. People read that, and often they think about this idea of some kind of weapon. But I've just told you that he doesn't need a weapon. He's got his word. So what does that phrase mean, to rule with a rod of iron? This is one of those times where a little bit of understanding of some of the original languages helps because the word here that is translated to the word rule also means to shepherd. You know this already. The, the instrument that a shepherd must have is his staff. That staff is typically a rod of iron, crooked at one end, pointed at the other. So I submit to you that when he comes back, not to judge, because that's not what it says, but it rather says to rule the world, he's coming as a shepherd to shepherd his sheep. I submit to you tonight that that will be a sign of the ages. Coming will be visible. Quickly, let me move to verse number 17, because we need to hit this and hit it hard. Not only will his coming be visible, but his coming will be violent. His coming will be violent. Please notice what verse 17 says, and if you have a reference Bible, it probably refers to this passage as the battle of Armageddon. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper Thy great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. When the Lord comes back, I've heard preachers say it like this, and I get amused by it. I think it's probably correct when they say, uh, the Lord's coming back, and man, is he mad. Amen. When he comes back, he doesn't come peacefully. He doesn't come to make peace. He comes to make war. The war and the defeat is instantaneous, and there are zillions, if you'll allow that word. It's not a real number, but you know what it means. There are zillions of dead. And in fact, the Bible even describes it in 1420, Revelation 1420, as the blood will be up to the horse's bridle. That's how deep the blood will be. What a slaughter. All the levels of army of God's enemies are on the menu for this supper. That means the kings, free, the bond, the slave, small and great, all are reduced to nothing. The Lord never even has to lift a finger. He simply uses the word of God. His coming will be visible. His coming will be violent. And I hope everybody will say amen when I say this, number three. His coming will be victorious. What's going to happen? I'd like you to look real quickly. Hold your place there. Put your little bookmark. Turn back just a couple of pages, please. Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. I want to show you where we get that term, that phrase, Armageddon. 
While we call this the Battle of Armageddon, Armageddon is a real place. It's not a large territory, but is a real location. Revelation chapter 16, look at verse 16. He gathered them together into a place in the Hebrew, called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. He gathered them together. And would you please note this? He gathered them together. Do you see that? He gathered them together to a place in the Hebrew tongue, called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Armageddon is fully described in verses 19, 20, and 21 of our text. So flip back to Revelation 19. We find out in chapter 16 the name of the place. It's called Armageddon. That's the location. Just like we call Gettysburg the Battle of Gettysburg, we call Armageddon the Battle of Armageddon. So in verse 19, we are told that earth's armies will be drawn to Armageddon. It's fascinating for me to think about it. The armies who despise one another, the territories of this world who cannot get along are all united for one reason, their hatred of God. Armies that cannot even, let me give it to you in modern language, armies that spy on each other's elections. <laughs> armies that try to wreak havoc on each other's processes. And can I just be political a second? I, I'm, I'm enjoying this, that, that, that they're upset because they've done to us what we've been doing to them for 50 years. Amen. Anyway. The armies of the world, all drawn to Armageddon. Look, if you would, please, at verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So as the Lord descends, the armies of this world that are still in existence unite together in opposition to him that comes. The question is asked, and appropriately, why Armageddon? I can't give you definitively. I believe they recognize somehow that that's where the Lord is heading, understanding that that is near Jerusalem, so they're heading that direction, near being a relative term. And so as he heads that way, they believe that they'll be able to defeat him there. The armies of the world head that direction, thinking that they will be able to destroy him there. What a surprise they have coming for them. Look at verse 20. The beast was taken with him, the false prophet, that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, them that worshipped his image, Look at verse 20, the last clause. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So as the beast, i.e. the Antichrist and the false prophet, lead this army against God, believing that they will be able to handle him, he shows them with the power of his word, and how does he do it? by casting them into a lake of fire. And I don't know about you, I hope I'm on the edge and get to give a final kick. Verse 21. And the remnant, sad but true, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat up on the horse. What is the sword, church? It's not a physical sword. What's the sword? The word. Again, the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. At this point, please note with me, at this point, the only two that are mentioned being sent into this burning abyss or this fire brimstone, a fire burning with brimstone, are the beast and the false prophet. What we read here is that the others, the remnant, are slain, destroyed, their physical bodies. What happens to them? That comes next. And so what does all of this lead to? 
Why is the Lord descending from heaven? Why is he coming back? What's the point of this? Well, I submit to you that, please allow this analogy, the groom wants to enjoy a honeymoon with his bride. Whereas most honeymoons might be a week, sometimes a weekend, sometimes people don't even have the ability to take a honeymoon. But in this case, the honeymoon between the groom and the bride won't be a week, won't be a weekend. We're going to look next week, and I'll show you that it's going to be a thousand years. Fellas, aren't you glad you ain't got to finance that one? Somebody say amen. A thousand years year millennial reign of Christ so let me kind of wrap all of this up in a nice little bow and explain to you where we are what are we waiting for next the rapture of the church the last great event that is to be on God's prophetic time schedule we know that we're nearly there I believe with all of my heart because the last thing that had to happen was Israel re or the the fig tree reblooming that's the that's the nation of Israel gathered together that ushers in what we know to be the rapture of the church, which begins a seven-year tribulation period here on planet Earth. During those seven years, two great events are happening in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the judgment seat of Christ. At the end of that seven years, the Lord comes back. He doesn't come back alone. He comes back with his bride. The Lord does the fighting. The bride's just the arm candy. We come back with just the Lord uh, watching him do the fighting. And boy, does he ever do a good job. Destroying all of the enemies. We sing songs about this, uh, oftentimes not even knowing what it's talking about. So at the end of this battle of Armageddon, ushers in what we refer to as the millennial reign of Christ. But listen to me, it's not done there's lots that happens there and even after the millennial reign of Christ. We've still got more prophecy ahead of us. But here's what I want to make sure we're all secure on tonight. Because when you listen to some of this and when you read some of this and when you hear some of this, it's easy to think, my goodness, this sounds so science fiction-like. This sounds so fantastical. This sounds absolutely unbelievable. May I submit to you tonight, that 15 years ago, this was unbelievable. I mean, think with me for just a second. Those of you who are my age and older, do you remember the cartoon when we were kids that was all about the future and somebody would call and you could see their face? Somebody tell me what it was called. The Jetsons. We're in a place now, church, where for little ones, the Jetsons looks like past tense. I submit to you tonight, don't think because you can't understand all of it right now that it's not a possibility. Our human minds aren't meant to comprehend all the deepness of God's Word. That's why we call it faith. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time tonight. The opportunity study a few moments this important passage, realizing, Lord, that the soon return of God is surely imminent upon us, the return of the Son, first as the rapture of the church for the bride of Christ, and secondly, as he returns back and every eye shall see and every knee shall bow. Lord, in the meantime, help us to be busy about the Father's work, realizing that our time is short and the work is plentiful. Lord, we'll thank you. And we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Folks, we've got to do our quarterly business meeting tonight. We won't be long. And if you're visiting and want to slip out, you can. You're welcome to stay. As always, uh, nothing to hide but important matters that we do need to discuss. And we'll do that quickly this evening so we can get you on your way. My father-in-law used to say all the time as he did a quarterly business meeting, quarterly meetings aren't inspired, but they are important. So let's get to it tonight. Sister Teresa. You come on this evening and read to us the minutes of the last meeting, if you would, please. The regular quarterly business meeting at SAGBC was held on Wednesday, April 19, 2017. 
Pastor Greg Hodges opened the meeting with prayer. Teresa Cassidy read the minutes from the last quarter. Gerald Cassidy made a motion to accept the minutes as read. It was seconded by Bobby Upchurch. Motion carried. Pastor Hodges read the missions report. Mike Carroll made a motion to accept the report as read. It was seconded by Daryl Hyatt. Motion carried.